Meditation practice is an investigation of who we are. It's an investigation of our bodies. And we do that through awareness of the breath, through awareness of movement, through awareness of the sensations we feel, through awareness of the subtle energies of the body. Meditation is also an investigation of our minds. And over the next few days, we'll be giving instructions for paying attention to thoughts and feelings and different kinds of emotions that arise. And what we find is that although our personal stories, our personal histories are quite different, we have different backgrounds, different family situations, different education. Our stories are different, but the basic nature of this heart-mind-body is the same. The pain in the knee is the same. The feeling of sadness or happiness or joy or depression or anger or rage or excitement or interest or compassion or love, the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom, is the same in all of us. And it was the same in the time of the Buddha as it is now, which is one reason the Dharma is called timeless. It's not relative to particular circumstances or particular time or place. Meditation is also an exploration of the mystery of consciousness. What is awareness? What is it that knows? This is the fundamental question that we look at as our practice deepens. The power of the Buddhist teachings lay in his deep understanding, his profound understanding of natural law, of how this body, heart, mind work and how they work together. And the teachings are not a question of belief and it's not a question of dogma. The Buddha was not saying this is how it is and you must believe it. All of the teachings are really an investigation, an invitation for us each to investigate for ourselves. It's an invitation for us to look and see. So in one way, we could think of meditation as a science of the mind. And what this means, or the implication of this is, that we practice and refine our skills of observation. So we can see into this mind-body system more precisely, more exactly. So we can look with greater clarity. When I first went to India to practice, one of the first things that Manindraji, my first teacher, said, and it's really what hooked me on this practice in its simplicity. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. So there's nothing to join, and there's nothing to believe, and it was just this basic common sense if you, want to sit, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. 
How else could we understand our minds? You know, I have a friend who's studying neuroscience, getting his doctorate, and I visited uh, this a couple of years ago. And there were these huge textbooks. You know, I did not understand a single sentence. <laughs> I mean, it was like it was like reading some completely foreign language and this massive text on the nature of the mind or, or understanding the mind, the brain. So it's a huge relief to realize that that may provide some level of conceptual understanding, but it does not particularly give the experiential insight into the nature of the mind. And that's precisely what the practice is about. Unfortunately, interesting though all that may be, it is not necessary for us to understand how our minds are working. We simply need to sit down and train our minds to look, to observe. One of the things that we see is that our lives are not unfolding by chance. They're not unfolding accidentally. There are certain laws of nature that are at work. And one of the laws of nature, one of the most fundamental laws, one of the most important ones for understanding the possibility for happiness in our lives, is an investigation into the law of cause and effect. You know, we can understand this pretty easily in the physical world, you know, in the laws of physics or chemistry or biology. We can understand the laws of cause and effect in the mind-body interface. I'd like to read you something. It's not quite neuroscience, but it has that scientific flavor. It's something I really liked. Consider a world without consciousness. This is a very graphic image, so kind of just get into the imagery of the words, because it's quite amazing. Consider a world without consciousness. The darkness is a bubbling cauldron of energy and vibrating matter, locked in the dance of thermal agitation. Through shared electrons or the strange attraction of unlike charges. Quivering molecules absorb and emit their characteristic packages of energy with the surrounding fog. Free gas molecules buffeted in all directions by their neighbors form swirling turbulent flows. A massive solar flux and cosmic radiation from events long past crisscross space with their radiant energy and silently mix with the thermal glow of living creatures. Within the warmth of their sticky protein bodies, the dim glow of consciousness is emerging to impose its own brand of organization on this turbulent mix of energy and matter. The active filter of consciousness illuminates the darkness discards all irrelevant radiation, and in a grand transmutation converts and amplifies the relevant. 
Dead molecules erupt into flavors of bitterness or sweetness. Electromagnetic frequencies burst with color. Hapless air pressure waves become the laughter of children. And the impact of a passing molecule fills a conscious mind with the aroma of roses on a warm summer afternoon. So I don't know whether you got into that at all or not. <laughs> but it's kind of amazing the levels that things are happening on. You know? And all of that is part of the law of cause and effect. You know, on a level we're usually not conscious of and how you know, these basic physical laws manifest in terms of our everyday experiences. But on a more macro level, something that may be a little easier to relate to, we see the law of cause and effect just in the world around us. You know, we pollute the environment, it has consequences for our health, for our well-being. We clean up the environment, it has other consequences. And this is so obvious. And that's just, of course, one example of countless ones. In addition to these physical laws of nature, the Buddha took it one step further. And this is really where we bring it into the meaning of our practice. There are also natural laws of the mind. And in the Buddhist understanding of cause and effect, he called this, this understanding the law of karma. Very simply, actions have consequences. That our actions are not happening in a vacuum. And most profoundly, what most conditions the result of our actions is the motivation behind, behind them. And so all of this is summed up in one short phrase. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. This whole law of karma. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. That is the most essential element for us to understand. Now, if we habitually practice greed or anger or fear, that becomes the inner world we inhabit. And we know this from ourselves, the patterns that we develop through repetition, through repetition of habit, we create an inner environment and then we live in it. If we practice, if we cultivate love or compassion or generosity, then these qualities become the realities of our world, the realities of our mind. So genuine wisdom understands this very important relationship between motivation, action, and result. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. The Buddha expressed this very simply in the first verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddha's teachings. And this is the very famous opening verses. 
he said, mind is the forerunner of all things. If we think or act with an impure mind, suffering follows like the wheel follows the foot of an ox, on an ox cart. Suffering follows inexorably when we think or act with motives of greed, of hatred, of delusion. And he said, if we think or act with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves. It seems so straightforward. Such a clear description of what leads to suffering, what leads to happiness. The problem is that in our lives, our motivations are not always so clear. Now, often our motivations are mixed, or there's a series of conflicting ones, or they're confused, or we don't know what they are. And we haven't trained ourselves really even to pay attention to our motivations. How often do you stop and reflect before you speak? What is my motive behind these words? Hmm. 10% of the time? I mean, that would be good. It's not something we are habitually trained to do. And sometimes it's just confusing. Sometimes we don't, we're not really clear. I had one experience in my very early days in India. Uh, I'd been practicing in Bodh Gaya, the place, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. It's just this small village, but this very important you know, spiritual place. And I was in the local bazaar. You know, and in India, of course, those of you who have been there know that there are a lot of beggars on the streets and in the bazaar. So I was just buying some oranges, you know, in the bazaar. And this little beggar boy comes up, you know, and he holds out his hand. And then, just kind of without thinking, I give him an orange that I just bought. But then something interesting happened, very unexpected. He just walked away. There was no nod, no smile, nothing. And I just gave him the orange, and he walked away. Well, what was surprising was that there was an expectation in my mind of something. It's not that I was looking for effusive thanks for a (laughs) miserable orange. But I just, right in that mix of that action, you know, it was just this moment of spontaneous, yeah, here's somebody, give him an orange. But right in there, unbeknownst to me, until, until it all unfolded, was that other little expectation of just some acknowledgement. And when it wasn't there, that's what revealed it. That's what illuminated. It was just a very interesting moment for me because I saw how often there are things going on in our minds that we may not be aware of. Hidden motives or motivations that are not clear and not that wholesome. It takes a lot of willingness and a lot of interest and a lot of honesty and sometimes a lot of courage to actually look into our hearts and that willingness to see the shadow side. And to recognize that in addition to the more common view that we should follow our hearts, to recognize that it's not simply a question of following our hearts, it's a question of training our hearts. 
Because not everything in our heart is so wonderful. And if you don't know it yet, (laughs) you will certainly know it by the end of the retreat. (laughs) Because this is one of the most obvious things, that we just begin to see what's actually there. It's not always a pretty picture. (laughs) There's this this line from Zorba the Greek. One of the characters says, self-knowledge is always bad news. (laughs) And this is part of our discovery. So all the forms and the techniques and the methods that we speak about are all tools and skillful means for training the heart, for undertaking this training. So this evening I'd like to talk just a little bit about some of these fundamental tools. We can take refuge in the simplicity of this form that is sitting and walking. can't get much simpler than what we're doing here. You know, you sit and you finish sitting and you walk and you finish walking and you sit and maybe throw a meal in or two and you sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. Well, in that is a great power. Because by not engaging in a lot of distractions and a lot of unnecessary activities, we really begin to see a lot of what is going on in our minds. And something quite amazing happens. By narrowing the focus of our attention, it's like focusing a microscope. By narrowing the focus of attention, we actually open up to whole new levels of understanding. We begin to see whole new levels of reality. When Indraji used to say, And this, this, I think, is the simplest meditation instruction ever given. And it's something you can always come back to in moments of confusion. If you sit and know you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. Just sit and know you're sitting. The whole of the Dharma will be revealed. Because we're paying attention, we're present. I'd like to read you something. This is, this is about an exercise in attentiveness. And it's a story told about Louis Agassiz, who was a Swiss-born American naturalist, who was a famous teacher and had this wonderful method of training his students to observe. So this is a story told by one of his students, Samuel Scudder. The initial interview at an end, Agassiz would ask the student when he would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, even evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. 
He was asked to look at the fish, whereupon Agassi would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. So this is Samuel Scudder recounting his experience. In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. (laughs) I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish, and now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. (laughs) But now I set myself to task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain... I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The day following, having thought of the fish most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, look at your fish. (laughs) In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled. A legacy the professor has left to me, as he has left it to many others, of inestimable value, which we could not buy, with which we cannot part. You're lucky. So within the simplicity of the form of just sitting and walking, we then take it a step further. And we give ourselves a reference point of a primary object. So in the sitting it's the breath, it's the in-out or the rising-falling. In the walking it's the movement of the foot or leg. And we practice coming back to this primary object again and again. It's like coming back to the dead fish. Are we at the point yet where we see how little we've seen? This training of the attention and this way of training the attention is common in many spiritual traditions. This is not a particularly Buddhist technique. It's a way of training the mind. This is from a Catholic spiritual guide, St. Francis de Sales, he said, if the mind wanders, this is like from the 17th century, I think, if the mind wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing in the whole of your hour, but bring your mind back, 
even though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. Does it sound familiar? (laughs) And yet this is the practice. This is the training of the mind. And even if we did nothing in the whole of the hour but bring our mind back, even though it went away every time we brought it back, the hour would be very well employed. From this simple practice, and it is, it is exceedingly simple, just coming back and feeling the breath, feeling a step. From this simple practice, we begin to experience the first important insight. You know, this is called insight meditation. And probably many of you are wondering, well, where are the insights? Well, you've already had the first one, and it's probably the most important one. And it's the insight into how frequently our minds wander. Is there anybody who has not had that insight? (laughs) Probably. It's like, that's the first thing we see. You know, we give it this very simple object, in and out. We're not trying to visualize, you know, a hundred thousand deities in different colors and a fantastic mandala. It's just in and out, or rise and fall. And yet, what happens? We're with a breath or two or in a good sitting three, and then the mind just hops on these trains of association. And we hop on this train we don't know we've hopped on. We have no idea where the train is going. And then sometime later, sometime down the track, it's like we wake up and we can be in a completely different mental environment. Oh yeah, back to the breath. Now, when we look at this, and we really watch this process, there are some interesting corollaries to this insight. The first is, and this is quite surprising, these mental journeys, we go on them, they don't even have to be pleasant. You know, because we, get, we can get lost reliving old arguments, old hurts. The people could be long dead. And we can be mulling over this stuff. And not pleasant. And still, we, we take the journey. Perhaps more surprising than that, not only are they not pleasant very often, a good part of the time they're not even true. We're, we're just making stuff up. And there are many, many examples of this. But I'll just one, just at a retreat at IMS, you know, like here, uh, there are shower hours. And, you know, the request is that after 10 or, 10 or 11 at night, you know, please don't take a shower so you're not disturbing other people. Well, there was this one yogi, a woman, in, in the women's dorm at IMS. It was 11 or 11.30, and she heard the shower going. And then she's reporting this to me in an interview. And, she, you know, she's starting to get really irritated about how can they be doing that and don't they know that they're not supposed to in the shower hours and they're disturbing all these people and keeping people up and her mind is going on and on and she's getting 
more and more upset and agitated. So finally, I mean, her mind was a little out of control by then. She kind of gets out of bed, you know, marches down to the shower, looks in about to let this yogi know what's what, and there was no one there. <laughs> and she had been hearing some mechanical noise from someplace else in the building, had made up a whole story in her mind, <laughs> gotten very emotionally invested in the story, got her out of bed, you know, no one was there. And what's so amazing is she went back to bed, the sound was still there, went to sleep, no problem. <laughs> so this is what our minds do. This insight into how often our minds get distracted is really of crucial importance because it leads us to the understanding of how important it is, even how urgent it is, to steady and stabilize our minds, our awareness. Because in our lives, it's not that we're just kind of daydreaming away and we're getting lost. I mean, that would not be particularly productive, but might not be that harmful. But it's not simply that. Very often in our lives, we are acting out these thoughts and feelings. And when we look around in the world, into so many places of suffering in the world, whether it's situations of racial or economic, you know, or social injustice, or religious intolerance, you know, or the violence of war, when we really look to see in all of these situations and many others what it is that is really going on, we see that it is people acting out the stories of fear, of greed, of hatred. That's what's being manifest. And the great lesson for us is to see that it's not only out there. It's within our own minds as well. we begin to see, right from the very first day of practice, when we have the insight into how untrained our mind is, we begin to see that the fundamental causes of suffering or happiness really lie within ourselves. This is, this is a Dharma poem by one of the great Tibetan teachers of the last century, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche. He said, mindfulness is the root of dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. 
By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. This is our practice. In this very simple way, in the simplicity of the form of sitting and walking, of coming back to the primary object, we are practice stabilizing this essential quality. Doing this, coming back to the primary object over and over again, takes a certain clarity of intention, clarity of purpose. So we don't keep simply indulging the wandering mind. You've probably recognized there is a point of choice. You know, when we're lost, we're lost. But at the moment when we're aware that we're in the middle of some story, right at that place, there is a choice. But it's a very challenging choice because of a phenomena that I've come to call Vipassana brilliance. And that is, as we sit and all these thoughts come, suddenly our minds just become brilliant. We have all these creative notions of the novels we're going to write and the inventions we're going to invent and the relationships we're going to heal and the projects we're going to undertake. And we get so enraptured by the brilliance of our minds that we forget what we're doing here. So there's a mantra. There's a Vipassana mantra, which I've trademarked. (laughs) But I'll share it with you. From the perspective of the meditation practice, nothing is worth thinking about. So when you're struck by Vipassana brilliance, just remember this mantra. From the perspective of meditation, it's not that generally, in general, nothing is worth thinking about, but from the perspective of the meditation practice, nothing is worth thinking about. In the moment of recognizing that we've wandered, whatever it may be, whatever the fascinating topic, if we can remember, just simply come back, come back to the breath. A colleague of ours, Sharon Salzberg, tells a story of her first experience in India learning the meditation. She had not practiced it all before and got the teachings, you know, just same teachings, very simple, you know, just sit down and watch the breath. And she had done a lot of reading about Buddhism and she thought, well, you know, this is the good basic instruction, but once I get good at this, then I'll get the the real teachings. (laughs) You know, so she practiced and she had the same difficulties as everybody else in mind wandering, coming back. But after a year or two or three and ten, you know, where she actually was getting, you know, some concentration, she kept waiting for for the real teachings, but it was always just the same. You know, come back to the dead fish. 
well, tonight is the night for the secret teachings. So, and it's really too bad she's not here. <laughs> because it's not about being mindful of one breath at a time. That is not the real teaching. The real, deep, secret teaching is to be aware of just half a breath. <laughs> because one breath is too much. There's too much time there. And within the duration of a whole breath, the mind will certainly find an opportunity to sneak off. But if you make your intention a half breath, that's all of your right effort to be aware just the in-breath, just the out-breath. You will see that actually our mind has the capacity to do that. Right? In. Whew, did it. Okay. And then, out-breath. Did it. And what we find is, and this, this is really very helpful, we do not have to be aware of an hour's worth of breaths. That is way, way, way beyond our capacity. One breath is way beyond half a breath. In, out, or rising, falling. There's a poet and I'm not really familiar with him, but I just came across a little piece, a biographical note in a, in a book of poetry. I'm not even quite sure how to pronounce his name, Dennis Sela, S-A-L-E-H. And he wrote something which just captured my attention. He said, I have been hard at work now, longer than I like to remember, on a novel set in ancient Egypt. I found out how the pyramids were built, slowly. Almost anything can be done, it seems, if one proceeds slowly enough, but we moderns simply cannot grasp this. And I read that, and it so resonated with meditation practice. There is tremendous wisdom in the statement, almost anything can be done, even Buddhahood if one proceeds slowly enough, one step at a time, one breath at a time. You know, but so often we're discouraged by the enormity of a task or the length of a journey, and we get discouraged and we lose faith in ourselves. Patience reminds us of what is just right in front of us, this half-breath this part of the step. Almost anything can be done. Even awakening, if we proceed slowly enough. Now as we practice this new and secret teaching, what happens is half breath at a time because it actually is within our capacity, slowly the power and the stability and the steadiness and the duration of our concentration begins to increase. 
we actually can train our minds. And it's not that there are no thoughts. Thoughts still come, but they are less compelling. We're not so pulled into them. We're not so drawn. And we begin to experience, and this is one of the the gifts of the practice along the way, we begin to really experience a sense of inner relief. And when we're not driven so much by this endless rush of thought, as the concentration stabilizes and steadies, there's the sense, to some degree, of inner stillness, inner peace, inner spaciousness, From this place of greater spaciousness, then we begin to see not only what it is that's happening in the moment, but also how we're relating to it. And this is meditation as an art. It's not only a science of the mind where we see exactly and precisely what's happening, we also begin to discover meditation as an art. And this is really the art of true relationship to experience. There are many different ways of being with our experience, both in meditation and in our life, in life situations. We could be aware of what's happening. We could know what's happening, but be filled with our likes and dislikes and judgments and preferences And that's how we relate to experience, just acting out all the patterns of our conditioning. Or we might be aware of what's happening and be relating with compassion, with openness, with receptivity, with mindfulness. Those are two very different worlds. And we can take a look at this art of meditation right with every breath right with every breath. How are we with the breath? Do we want it to be a certain way? Are we impatient? You know, watching this one in order for the next one to come. Are we pulling it in? Are we bored? You know, just another breath. I can't stand this. You know, all that. It's like the dead fish. You know, in, out, in, out, in, out. But it's really quite remarkable given that the breath, each breath, is actually sustaining our lives. And this is not a metaphor. Each breath is sustaining our lives. If somebody were holding our head underwater, we probably have a compelling interest in the breath. And yet we sit here, oh, the breath is boring. It's because we are not really paying careful attention. There's a meditative disease which is called more or less mindfulness. You know, where we're kind of mindful, we're more or less mindful. We're not totally wandering, but we are not really paying close attention. Boredom is the feedback. That is the signal. It's not that the breath is boring. Boredom is telling us that there is a lack of close attention. 
So you can use that feedback very skillfully. You're feeling bored. Okay, can I feel this half breath more closely, more precisely? Sometimes we're making too much effort with the breath. You know, sometimes we're holding on too tightly, and that creates its own disturbance. The art of meditation is to see the relationship to experience. Are we more or less mindful? Are we too tight? How are we relating to it? I learned a lot about the art of meditation in Burma, mostly dealing with the noise. Because at the monastery where I was practicing, it was incredibly noisy. They were doing a lot of construction right in the monastery. The villages around the monastery, they would be blaring with these loudspeakers, you know, kind of music all day and a good part of the night. The construction project, they were straightening these steel rebars, you know, so they were just banging metal on metal. This was all day long. It was, it was like if right outside this window, all day, you know, clang, 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 and it's a very metallic, grating sound. So I went to Saito Pandit and said, there's all this noise, how can I meditate? You know, and I was in a rather grumpy mood. And he just looked at me and he said, did you note it? And I looked at him, (laughs) not saying what I really thought, (laughs) but feeling, well, he's just trying to make the best of a bad situation. You know, okay, he he knows it's really bad, but, you know, okay, did you note it? But it was actually pointing to an insight that not only can transform our meditation practice, but can transform our lives. There was something very profound in that question, did you note it? Because from the perspective of meditation, from the perspective of awareness, now this is really important, if you get this, your retreat is already a smashing success (laughs) and you will save yourself an endless amount of suffering. Okay, so you ready? (laughs) From the perspective of awareness, it does not matter what the object is. Because the nature of awareness is simply to know. And that knowing is not altered in any way by whether the object is pleasant or unpleasant. The nature of awareness is simply to know, just like the nature of a mirror is simply to reflect. The mirror doesn't care whether what comes in front of it is beautiful or ugly. or Its nature simply reflects. So often we talk about the mirror-like wisdom of the mind. That's what Upandita was pointing out to me. Sounds, unpleasant sound, you know, painful feelings. Did you note it? Could you be aware of it? Can you simply know and rest in that knowing, rest in that 
wisdom-like awareness, mirror-like awareness. It does not matter what's arising because it's all changing anyway. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, and this is our life. So this is another little Vipassana mantra to remember, which can be very helpful as a reminder that it doesn't matter what the arising object is. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) And as you sit here, hour after hour, day after day, you will begin to see that. If it's not one thing, it's another. And our job is simply to know, to be mindful. What we learn about in this art of true relationship, in the solitude of practice, we can also apply in our relationships in the world. There's just a distinction I would like to draw, which I think has many implications for how we are on retreat and how we are in the world. And that is the distinction between loneliness and aloneness. So often we think of solitude, and you may have feelings of loneliness at different times, but the feeling of loneliness really has to do with separation and feeling apart from. Where the word aloneness comes It actually comes from Middle English, all one. When I first went to India and was with Manindraji, and we'd be walking around Bodh Gaya, and maybe some of you had met him. He died died last year. Uh, He was just this little guy dressed in white with this little white cap and very... Not at all what you would think, you know, a guru is like. You know, he didn't kind of walk in this kind of very stately, slow fashion. He was very speedy and kind of running around here and there. But he was very embodied. You know, he he was never rushing. Even as he would move quickly, he was never rushing. He was just in himself. So we'd be walking around kind of these back alleys of Bodhgaya. And he'd be going, speaking to me on and on about... Oh, I'm never lonely. The flowers are my friends and the clouds are my friends. And I kind of looked at him and (laughs) sounds a little hokey. (laughs) But over the years of practice, I have really and deeply come to appreciate what he was talking about. And we may all have touched that space. And maybe it's in the silence of retreat. Maybe it's, you know, being alone in nature where we might be completely alone and totally connected with the moment's experience. And there is such beauty in that. I want to read something just, this is just a little piece from the writer Paul Bowles. And it's about the Sahara and the experience in the Sahara. 
Immediately when you arrive in the Sahara for the first time or the tenth time, you notice the stillness. Then there is the sky, compared to which all other skies seem faint-hearted efforts. Solid and luminous, it is always the focal point of the landscape. Presently, you will either shiver and hurry back inside familiar walls, or you will go on standing there and let something very peculiar happen to you, something that everyone who lives there has undergone, and which the French call the baptism of solitude. It is a unique sensation, and it has nothing to do with loneliness, for loneliness presupposes memory. Here in this holy mineral landscape, lighted by stars like flares, even memory disappears. Nothing is left but your own breathing and the sound of your heart beating. This is what happens as we come back into the moment. It's the baptism of solitude. The aloneness is not a separation, it's a connection. And this, I feel, is the real meaning of intimacy. It's not the myth of intimacy that's dependent on people being a certain way with us. The real intimacy with the moment is in the mind that is free of wanting. So we develop this art of meditation. It's the art of an open, intimate connection with each moment's experience. And in doing this, we begin to touch the truth of our lives. I'd just like to close with something from the writer Louise Erdrich, Native American writer, which just captures captures really the whole meditative path. She said, those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life, but every so often something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. This is our practice. Shattering over what shattering what we paper over in daily life, falling into the river of our own existence. We are aware. So let's sit for just a couple of moments. Remember the secret teaching. Half a breath.
The bell is an amazing sound. Air molecules. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.